0: Three, two, one.
1: I tell people all the time, loving us costs. It costs me. Those are risks that I'm willing to take. I don't center myself in America. I don't belong to America. I don't claim America in ways that I know so many people do. Yes, it is the place where I was born. Yes, it is the place where I reside, where I live. I know it's not mine. I am not here To serve white people. I am not here to save white people. And I know it might sound like how do we make sense of this if ultimately the goal is to dismantle white supremacy. I also want to dismantle white supremacy from the from the perspective of getting black people to recognize it for what it is and therefore work towards dismantling
0: it. Dr. Yaba Blay is the teacher we all needed growing up. Dr. Blay, and that's doctor with an intentional lowercase dr, describes herself as an anti-academia academic, meaning academia is another system that needs reform. She is a Ghanaian American scholar, speaker, cultural worker, producer, and author. She wrote and art directed the stunning photography book, One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race, that she originally self-published in 2013 and now re-released with not a single edit with Beacon Press. She was also a consulting producer on CNN's Who is Black in America. The conversation Yaba and I have is a much needed one, one I personally needed. Tears are shed and some healing goes on, and you know, that's typical podcast nor style. We talk about being first gen, the battle of bicultural identity, the story we are told about America, what it means to do work that traumatizes you, the relationship between corporations and how they approach anti-racism work, and so much more. Buckle up, because this one goes deep. I mean, I think I say that about all of them, but this one just hit a little bit differently. Welcome to this guided storytelling session of Podcast Mood with Dr. Yaba Blay. Hello, Dr. Blay. I am so honored to have you here to talk about your work, to talk about what's on your mind, what's on your heart. I'd love to start out by asking you how your heart is doing today.
1: You know, that's a lovely question that I always appreciate being asked, but honestly, I don't always know how to answer it because I can tell you how I feel. I don't know if that's how my heart is necessarily. Well, how
0: do you feel these days?
1: Um, right now, I'm annoyed and I'm frustrated uh, just with the general state of things, but um, at the expense of dating, our conversation, you know, this week. We got news about Micaiah Bryant being killed by police and um, the online conversations, the public conversations around it have been really, I don't even know the word, challenging, but not that other uh, murders of black people by the state, not that they haven't affected me, but something about this particular one has affected me really bad. I had to take the day off uh just for self-sanity and self-care yesterday and i think the thing that has been so disturbing is that you know she's a black girl she's a regular black girl um and uh her tiktok videos you know she's not unlike my daughter my granddaughter my nieces any other black girl that i celebrate and love on in this world and the idea that her body communicated such I don't even know how it translated in the minds of a white male cop, but whatever her body communicated to him, told him to shoot her within 23 seconds of arriving four times in the chest. And so it, it, it almost feels scripted. It almost feels by design. It almost feels strategic. And it's almost like, you know, in our community. There's a phrase that we use, you know, it's like playing in my face. It's like the idea that like you do it, you do it in our faces and you do it in our faces knowing you'll get away with it. And there's nothing we can do about it. And so in mourning Micaiah, I mourn myself. I mourn my daughter. I mourn my granddaughters. I mourn my nieces. I mourn Black women. I mourn Black girls. I mourn Black youth. I mourn Black people. I mourn Black lives. I just mourn because we don't even get to just be. And so the online conversations are annoying because folks are like, well, she had a knife. I don't remember the little white boy's name, but I remember the image of him walking around with an assault rifle, and he lived to, to walk into you know, police custody. So I don't wanna hear that she had a knife because white people have all kinds of weapons and live to tell their stories and live to, to cry about it, you know? I don't really even have, I have more feelings than I have words. I'm trying to Mm -hmm. hold space for all of us, you know, all of my community. Uh, We're all mourning. We're all impacted by this. And I think we're all trying to hold space for each other. I received and sent so many texts and calls yesterday just to tell people that I love them, you know, Um, and still life goes on. And so, you know, this question of how I'm feeling today, it's like, All of that's happening in the world and still their emails and still their deadlines and still their follow ups and still their requests to show up with, you know, (laughs) rightness of mind and the ability to have a conversation as if. I just feel we're all we're all being forced into some level of cognitive dissonance because that thing can happen in the world and still you must continue.
0: So many things I Want to respond to the first just being that if at any point in this conversation you don't have the capacity, you don't feel like talking about it, it's just not there. This is just a platform to be of service to you. So, my intention is only to do that. So, please just let me know if that at any point you don't want to talk about something or if you don't want to think about something. Of course, at your service. It is a perpetual grief consistently. I mean, and so many layers of grief. We're still in a pandemic. We were still holding our breath when we were waiting for the George Floyd verdict, which still wasn't entirely justice, but I had this thought loop the entire time we were watching, which was how are we still not sure what the result is going to be. And it is almost a consistent thing. And it, and it's, you know, less than 48 hours later, three other black people were killed by police. And what isn't America getting? We've heard things over and over again. People are yelling at the tops of their lungs. Promises are being made, but what is not clicking in the brain of the subconscious of America?
1: Who says it's not clicking? Maybe America doesn't want to change. America doesn't have to change. We're frustrated because we are using some level of logic that says, well, if this is going wrong, you would do something to make it right. If this is its foundation and its history and the only way it knows how to be.
0: Does that mean America is not for everyone here then? Because I think there are so many sub-communities that are not of the dominant culture who have literally built this land, who have contributed to this land, who have struggled. I mean, you and I have talked about the struggle and complications with bicultural identity and being a first-gen person and holding these two things but not having these two things. So does that mean America doesn't belong to you and I?
1: It depends on who you ask. I just think there's so many realities happening simultaneously, right? That's, yes. And so the work and the struggle is to sometimes come outside of ourselves to perhaps attempt to see it from whatever, whoever America is, right? See it from America's perspective. Like we have our lived experience and our perspective from the inside looking out, but sometimes it's a very important wake-up call and important reflection, I think, to recognize how it looks from their perspective. So, of course, we know that so many of our people have built this country. Of course, we know and believe that America wouldn't be what it is without us. But I don't know. In fact, I do know. America doesn't appreciate us. I don't care what it says. I don't care what billboard, what elevator pitch. Like, what you value, you do. And if it was true, we would feel it.
0: Mm-hmm. What does that mean for how you evolve in the relationship you have with your own work and who does that work become for?
1: My work is for black people all over the world. And so what I've learned the hard way and over time is that I don't center myself in America I don't belong to America. I don't claim America in ways that I know so many people do. Yes, it is the place where I was born. Yes, it is the place where I reside, where I live. I know it's not mine. And I don't I don't know how to make that clear. It's just, it's my truth. You know, I don't know how to make that any clearer than those words. And so when I say, you know, I do my work for black people all over the world, irrespective of where we are situated or the lands that we are tethered to because I do believe our experience is a global one in the same way that white supremacy is a global institution right and so you know notwithstanding where we live those are the realities that we have to live with and I, and, and deal with and I, and I think it's almost like somehow these these national identities, are crippling us because we want to believe that it's different in each of our countries and though it is right we've all got our own kind of like remix and twist to these experiences but when we're so tied and tethered to these spaces right we somehow believe that they are not connected to other spaces and other experiences and and it's very much tied to just the ways in which i think of blackness as an identity and as a a lived experience and as a lived reality that goes beyond these boundaries of land and space.
0: Thank you for sharing that.: It makes me think about what does hope mean today, and will America ever be something you feel belongs to you?
1: You know, again, I'm glad we started the conversation the way that we did, because I'll say in my defense, today might not be the best day to have that conversation. With- <laughs> But I don't know that any day would be any better. I just, I I mean it when I say it. I don't know how it's received or how it sounds. My identity is not tied to this place. And so when we talk about hope and dreams and all of these things, it is for black people. It is for black lives. It is not for this country. I could pack up all of my things and move to another country. And my intention and my hopes and dreams would be the same for my life, for the lives Mm -hmm. of people look and live like me, not for that country. And so give thanks for all the people, you know, who who have good hearts, good intentions, good hopes and dreams for this country. Of course, we need you. I'm not one of those people.
0: I appreciate you saying that because you give space for people who feel that pressure and realize that they don't want to be one of those people. And oftentimes, especially today with you know, the promises being made by brands and corporations and the government and who, whatever, and immediately just flocking to maybe the only people in a specific community that those people know and expecting them to have all of the answers and expecting them to be of service to them immediately. It's almost like this subliminal responsibility that so many people I've felt this way that I owed others, or I was expected to educate or deliver on certain things. While I'm happy to do so when it's my choice today, I didn't know that I had a choice. Did you ever go through an experience when you had people coming to you in that capacity where they were expecting things from you, where white people were expecting things from you and you felt like you had to deliver, but you didn't understand why it felt uncomfortable?
1: I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I've never not understood my discomfort. Um, Yeah, I don't know that I can pinpoint a time. That experience is real, particularly given the work that I do. Um, And it makes me question sometimes and want to even check myself, like, have I ever done that to any other group of people, right? But I think this idea that we think that any collection of people can speak on behalf of the entirety of the people is just, uh, it's just ill-informed, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but no, I can't think of a, an experience particularly.
0: You answered it with sharing that you know that it exists because of the work that you do. When I heard you give that response, I realized that it's rooted in shame. It's rooted in feeling like you don't belong. And so in order to feel like you deserve to be there, you have to live up to a standard that was set in place by a specific white gaze. I still struggle with that. I look at my work and I overanalyze it and overanalyze it. I'm like, who am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? Because for so long, especially because I work in media, I thought that the only way that I was going to be able to be here was if I was more like, a specific white person or white journalist. And I realized that that also came from internalized white supremacy and thinking I had to dye my hair blonde or wear colored contacts or act a type of way or hide parts of myself that made me feel extremely lost. And I know so many people, I think from my experience, especially first gen or immigrant people have experienced because they are still trying to find themselves. But something that I've realized as well is that we also have been put in situations that have forced us to know who we are, that have challenged our identity. Are you who you want to be, or are you who you expect other people to be? And I've noticed that oftentimes the fragility that comes from the dominant culture is that they've never had to really challenge their identities because it's always just been accepted, it's always just been there to experience, and then you have these situations where people can get away with so much.
1: It's interesting, as you're talking, the word that's coming to me is interlocutor. And it's making me wonder, right, for the people that you speak of, and even as you reflect on your own relationship to this experience, like I wonder, because this question of who I do my work for. There are many people, Black people in this moment, who might self-identify as quote-unquote anti-racist educators, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Folks who do, quote-unquote, diversity, equity, inclusion work. And I don't identify, I have such an interesting relationship with identities, but I don't, I don't identify with those things, even though I do work that might fall into that box, right? But I recognize that what happens so often with these terms and with these identities and with these labels, right, and titles, is that when you hear diversity educator, you may automatically assume you know what that means, right? And that we all come to the table with the same uh, intentions, right, or goals even. And I know, particularly post-George Floyd's assassination, Enter everyone wanting to be woke moment that we've been in. There are black folks who do this work with the expressed intention of teaching white people. They may even think that they're doing so for the greater good of all of us. And some of them might just be doing it because white people are also throwing obnoxious amounts of money at this work to assuage their own guilt, right? Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, will always, and I'm not saying this, I I hope, you know, I I hope my ego is not coming through first, right? This isn't about boasting that I'm different in that way. I'm just clear that my work is for Black people. Ultimately, it's for us, right? So if I do anything that falls in the realm of that work, I do it for the betterment of our experiences. Like, I don't know if you curse on your podcast. I curse a lot, so I'm trying hard not you to. You can,
0: this is for your platform.
1: I don't give a shit about white people in that regard. I am not here to serve white people. I am not here to save white people. And I know it might sound like, how do we make sense of this if ultimately the goal? is to dismantle white supremacy. I also wanna dismantle white supremacy from the from the perspective of getting black people to recognize it for what it is and therefore work towards dismantling it. Like, yes, there is work in making sure that white people see it. It's almost like white people are an afterthought. Like if you get something from my work, give thanks, but I'm not doing it for you. Does that make sense?
0: Uh- Absolutely. You're trying to get your community to truly understand what the system at play is.
1: Absolutely. I want us to even see, because I think the other thing too, like, when we speak about language, people hear white supremacy, A, they might only think of clans members, right? They don't think about, or, and, and, and in fairness, they may not have never learned about white supremacy as an institution, an insidious institution with historical foundations, right? When people hear white supremacy, they only think of white people. Right? Which means again, not understanding it as an ideology, as a value system, as a way of thinking, as, as a tool of colonization and enslavement, which means any of us who come from colonized in enslaved and marginalized communities can also be white supremacists. We can also be agents of white supremacy because it is reflected in our value system and our ideology. And so there are black people. There are people who look like me who don't find value in black life in the way that I do. There are people who look like me, who are black, who may actually believe the very things that we hear from racist white people. They may, they may also believe that about black people. And they may somehow distance themselves from those black people and constantly be tap dancing to show you how they're different. I'm not one of those people. And again, I'm I'm hope, I'm trying not to communicate this with judgment because what I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. I keep reminding myself that my goal is to always stay centered in my community to always have love and respect for my community and for my ancestors and for my culture, my history. I, I, I try to be mindful of that. And I say that because I also have to recognize for those black people who are white supremacists, for those black people who don't love black people, for those black people who are here to tap dance for white people, that given the way that white supremacy functions I can't be mad at them. It's the ones who know better and still choose differently that I can right. I, I, I can go toe-to-toe with, right? But when we think about our educational system, when we think about our families, when we think about our histories, like, to be very frank and very honest, when we think about the ways in which many of us have been acculturated away from ourselves,
0: mm-hmm. we've been
1: guided away from ourselves by our families, by our communities, because at a particular time, being too Black meant your black ass could get killed. So how do I hold on to your black life? I train you to not be so black in these white people's face because they don't like it. So you yes sir, and you yes ma'am, and you, you speak in a particular way, and you straighten your hair, and you bleach your skin, and you name your children European ass names, and you do all the things to make white people comfortable just so you can be alive. My question is, what kind of life is that?
0: So are you a preacher? I'm not. Because <laughs> <laughs> my heart just jumped out of my chest.
1: <laughs> I'm not. I just oh my I, gosh. I have little rants that, that come.
0: I'm They're not rants. I think that, I mean, you're, you're a scholar in that regard. You know, what's interesting <laughs> is for a very long time, I thought that scholars were, religion-educated people who are teaching and preaching. And I never really clicked. I mean, I knew what scholarly and scholar meant, but I never really clicked that fully with academia until maybe, you know, college. And there is that level of impact that you have as a scholar, as a teacher that penetrates the heart and changes minds. I think teachers have one of the most important roles in the world. We don't pay them enough for it hi there if you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service you can subscribe to my patreon at patreon.com nor it's usually personal writings and as i build a community on there hopefully more your support is how we build i also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things i'm benefiting from and enjoying that week anything from what i'm reading watching listening buying and more Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com slash newsletter. Now back to the story. Do you believe that majority of people have internalized white supremacy to a level? Yes. You wrote a book called One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race, which was originally self-published in 2013 and now re-released with a publisher years later, but you made this book because you needed to make this book to the point where you got sick while making this book. What was it about shifting the lens on race that you needed people to understand based on what we were just discussing, what you were just talking about, that you are still pushing teaching today?
1: very much born out of my, again, my my love for blackness and black culture. I was trained in black studies. My PhD is in black studies uh, with a concentration on women's and gender studies. And the beauty of being trained in those areas is that we have a responsibility to not only center our communities and the work that we do, but to somehow also center ourselves. And so, whereas mainstream, Uh, scholarship may encourage us to be objective, we know that there is no such thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I've always started my work with my own story, right? And so I am first generation Ghanaian born American, uh, dark skin, kinky hair, reflective of my West African heritage, born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, where there is a long history of colorism. Which is also very much connected to you know the fact that new orleans is a port city and so many enslaved africans and enslaved folks from the diaspora different areas of the diaspora came through new orleans um and so community there looks you know a lot of different ways but there's a group of people there a culture history there referred to as creole many of whom are recognized by their phenotype uh, racially ambiguous to some degree, light skin, what we call quote-unquote pretty hair. They didn't look like me, right? So I was in a conversation a few days ago and someone asked me uh, when did I realize that I was dark-skinned? And I'm like, before I knew how to spell my name, right? Because I wasn't dark-skinned in my family. I'm not the darkest person in my family. I'm not the darkest Ghanaian that there is. So much of our identity is in comparison to other folks, yes? So that, you know, children say the darndest things. Children let me know very early, like, oh, you're so black, compared to who they were, right? So I knew I was dark-skinned. I also knew that it was bad. I also knew that it wasn't desirable, right? How did
0: you know that part?
1: Because they said so, (laughs) you know? like. You so black usually is, is is the preface to some kind of insult, you know, uh, some reference to your hair. So it it wasn't a compliment, you know, and so I had particular uh, ideas of who I was, you know, also struggling with what it meant to live within and between two cultures um, as first generation, and so I had very I thought clear ideas about what blackness was. I thought. To claim a creole identity meant that you didn't want to be black because black was bad right so even in the space of loving my blackness i was raised by you know black nationalist ghanaian nationalist father who was not at least i wasn't i wasn't able to share with him if there was any level of question of my pride right it was like you are proud and that's it so always waving a ghanaian flag because of kofi Blay. um (laughs) trust that. But um, again, identity being a comparison point, very strong lived experiences with colorism, right? And I made meaning of those experiences. And in a lot of ways, i made absolute meaning of those experiences, meaning that if you were Mm light-skinned, there were perceptions about who you were and what you thought about yourself in comparison to myself, right? Fast forward, I leave New Orleans, I go to grad school in Philadelphia, still connecting with Black people from all over the diaspora, still hearing the pervasiveness of colorism. Colorism was the focus of my my research You know, in grad school. I did my dissertation on skin bleaching in Ghana, you know? And so constantly, it's the same narrative, it was just proof, proof, proof that colorism exists in a particular way. I was a scholar, I knew what it was graduated, had this uh, experience where I was on a panel, met a woman who kept identifying, we were talking about colorism in the diaspora. This is a woman who kept identifying as a black Puerto Rican woman from the South Bronx. And for as much as I knew, I was completely distracted by that because I had never, I knew about Afro-Latinx, You know, I knew about the variety of ways that folks identify across the diaspora, but I had never at that time heard someone say black Puerto Rican because in my experience moving to the Northeast, folks said Puerto Rican so as to say not white or not black, right? Clearly I know it is a national identity, but in my lived experience and in my colored communities, right, I'm not black, I'm Puerto Rican because those things were mutually exclusive. And so here's this woman saying, I'm a black Puerto Rican woman from the South Bronx. I'm looking at her, I'm hearing her words, I'm looking at her, I'm hearing her words, these things don't match to me. And so I was intrigued and we talked and I wanted to know, what does it mean to be a black Puerto Rican? What is that? Now, again, understand also that, you know, born and raised in America, definitely traveled to Ghana, right? Hadn't traveled the world right and so much of what it means to be an american um i I think about my addiction to 90 day fiance i watch it like an anthropologist but it just it 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 just completely reflects the extent to which this american nationalist identity where we keep talking about america being the, the greatest country on the planet right and that and that the truth is that most americans don't leave america and so you rely upon the media to show you the world the Puerto Rico, and I, I i had been to Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rico that I went to was San Juan, it was at a resort, it was at the beach. There are particular Puerto Ricans who come there for a reason, right? You would have to leave the resort to see the rest and the real Puerto Rico.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The same way you would have to leave the French Quarter to see the rest in the real New Orleans, right? I say all that to say, my understanding of who I thought I knew Puerto Ricans To be was challenged by this person sitting in front of me. And so it just sparked something, you know, another bright idea. I wanted to learn more about this experience of Blackness, not just from a diaspora perspective, but from the perspective of folks who may or may not look Black. Mm. Like what does it mean to claim a Black identity when you are not readily received as black and still you're chanting, I'm a black Puerto Rican woman from the South Bronx. Even when people will ask you why, how? No, you're not, right? And so most, all of the people in the project uh, have been asked the question, what are you? I've never been asked that question. I wouldn't even know how to answer it. I'd be looking at somebody like, are you all right? What do you mean, what am I? It's clear what I am. Is it not? What's wrong with you? But to be asked constantly, what are you to be constantly Mm -hmm. put in a position to defend and define your identity, I've the, and we can talk about that more. The parallel for me is having to defend and define my Ghanaian identity. Right. I've had that experience. So I think I understood to some degree, but something as visible as quote unquote race never been a question. So to talk to a large variety of folks from all over the world, having similar and unique experiences where they've had to define their blackness. And again, in my experience growing up in New Orleans, where folks seemingly from my perspective were claiming and or choosing a Creole identity so as to not have to claim or choose a black one right? It felt like a rejection of blackness. In my experience, folks who had the option to be something other than black took that option. Here you are. Listen to my language. You get to be Puerto Rican. Why would you claim black? Fascinating to me. And so it started off really as my own individual, selfish curiosity turned into something else. I started this project. It was not, I'm going to write a book. I literally was doing a project, I wanted to know, and it, it grew into something. Um, and, and it became a book um, after it was more so like a social media kind of visual project. Um, after I actually got uh, tapped by CNN to co-produce their last installment of Who's Black in America. Um, it became a book project um and, and I, I attempted to get a book deal and at the time the book publishing industry was not interested because full-color photography books are expensive and i don't believe that they trusted that folks would buy it <laughs> and so you know some attempted to say well can you do it without pictures we're talking about skin color no we have to have pictures and they have to be color and so with that rejection i was not going to be discouraged. And so that's why I published it myself.
0: It's the kind of work that you feel like you have no choice but to do and you have to do it yourself that it seems becomes the most rewarding and it delivers in more ways than one. I'm kind of going through that struggle right now. I'm working on a documentary on the misrepresentation of Muslims in American media and how that's impacted us. And a lot of the people that I talk to are too afraid to take it on because it challenges our own industry and the way that we've told stories before. And many times I've broken down crying and just like, I know I can't give up on this because I need it for myself. And so that's a good thing. When you need something for yourself, it's harder to give up on it because you can't sleep at night until you figure out why, why this happened, why you went through this, why people feel this way.
1: Absolutely. But
0: it's still so hard. Honestly, it, was really inspiring to see and learn about your journey with One Drop. Did you ever expect that it was going to be published again in the way no. that it has?
1: No. I worked on this book. I partnered with Noelle Tayard, who helped to direct the photography. We trotted all over the place, interviewing and photographing folks. I transcribed all of the, trans- the all of the interviews myself. I wrote the book. I paid an editor. Uh, one of my dear friends designed the book like it was a home team effort, did a Kickstarter to raise the money to to print it, Ikea bags full of books to the post office to ship them out. By the time I had the book release, Black Friday uh, 2013, I, I mean, anybody who was at that party, I, I, I wasn't there. I felt like a zombie. I was not there. I had I had worked myself into what felt like a catatonic state and after that release I remember being in bed probably for two days straight not able to function. Uh, rolled over opened my laptop and booked a trip to Florida. I went to the beach and I you know laid in the sun and drank and prayed and cried and tried to wash it off of me in the water and I came back and my granddaughter was born 2 days later. My eldest granddaughter, I was there for that and it felt like an immediate shift for me. So whereas for most folks your book comes out, they tell you you spend the first 4 weeks really promo and pushing. I didn't. I walked away from it and moved on to the next project. Look at God. <laughs> Look at God. 7 years later to have the book acquired by Beacon and to literally not have to make one change. Wow. They updated the front and back information. There's no edits to that book. There's an edit in the cover design. It looks different from the original that I put out. But content-wise there are no changes to that book. And so it's it's surreal in a lot of ways. Um in this moment, also again, you know, ego always enters the space, so I try to recognize her when she does. So on the one hand, I celebrate, but then on the other hand, there's a part of me that's annoyed, right? That it's like it it it, it took for everybody to now want to be anti-racist for you to have interest in my book, but also y'all, but shut up and let the people appreciate your book because what I also right. know, not just that people are buying it to say, oh, I have it and put on, people are reading it. People. What are What an honor
0: up. to know that.
1: Yeah, to different conversations. And so I received that and I accept it. I'm honored by it. I'm thankful for it. Absolutely in a space of gratitude um, about it. But yeah, I would have never imagined.
0: Mm. What would you tell Yaba on that day of the book launch? If you were to look at her right now, what would you tell her?
1: You won't always have to work this hard. It doesn't have to be like this. It's like this right now. It won't always have to be like this. There was a part of me that felt, because it was the same with my dissertation, I just have always felt like I'm constantly fighting to get people to just pay attention to what I'm saying. Constantly. I'm feeling like I cannot give up. To the point that I make myself sick. Trying to prove something to people that don't matter. That's what I would have told her on that day. And so now, seven years later, I still work hard. (laughs) I'm still frustrated by the amount of time that I spend that I work. But I know that people are listening to me. And it's because... I stood in my truth and I told my story the way it needed to be told, not because it was the way someone else wanted to hear it. And I don't appreciate you making me cry right now. I'm
0: so sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry.
1: Don't be. Because sometimes you need to know That you are not alone in whatever it is you are experiencing and feeling. Because what happens is we try to make it look good, right? (laughs) We take pretty pictures with our books and look at me celebrating, I'm winning. And we're dead on the inside. That's the reality that a lot of people aren't willing to share.
0: It feels endless sometimes.
1: Of course. It will end if you don't waver from your truth, the reward comes. And I don't know it, it's not my experience, it's just what I've seen, but I can tell when people aren't doing it for themselves, they're either doing it for the money, they're doing it for the fame, the likes, the attention. That's not sustainable.
0: Yeah.
1: That means you'll, you'll shift and dance for whatever comes up at the time, stand in your truth. The rewards are coming. There are probably rewards that you don't even see and feel yet. They're probably already holding you and you can't feel them.
0: What have you learned about mindfulness in being in the moment from that?
1: I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I have a beautiful community of sister friends who are so over me. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you they and and I get it right because I've had so many experiences where they just like you just you don't see yourself and I know that I don't in so many ways they they try to show it to me but like when you're not attached in a particular way you no matter how hard people try you can't see it and I feel like I'm finally starting to see it and feel it so. It takes time, but it also takes vulnerability and a willingness to be open to it. And it took me getting sick. It took my daughter crying and saying like, I need you here for me to step back and say, it's it's none of none of this is, none of it is worth it. None of it.
0: Yeah. I like, sometimes I just, when things are really hard, I just say, Well, you're going to die. So that's there and not in a morbid, terrible way. But isn't it such a relief to know that it does end at some point and that you don't have to do this forever? And when you know that, doesn't that just shouldn't that just remind us that just do what you know you need for yourself and do what you love. And when you are of service to yourself that way, it naturally becomes of service to everyone else. I think so many people take on an entire cause and burden. And it's almost, not to say it in a mean way, but it's almost selfish. Like, who do you think you are taking this whole thing on by yourself when there is community for a reason? There's a reason that we have to build. There's a reason that we have to connect. There's a reason we have to share our stories. And one drop, I just even knowing the story of it and knowing the story in it, It's a history book. It's rewriting history and giving people new narratives to learn about that we don't learn about in school so that they can feel seen, heard, and valued and also have the language and the tools that they need to recognize the things that they're feeling. I don't know if most people in the world know what colorism is or know that term, but they know what that experience is. They know what it feels like. Skin bleaching is something that, happens all over the world and one of the things that you have said about skin bleaching and why you needed to do the research on it was the question what is the value that light skin has that you are willing to die for it Mm -hmm. what is the value that light skin has that you are willing to die for it
1: and in answering that question i have to come back to white supremacy And I can be a broken record. I'll take that. People know that I say white supremacy over and over and over again. I choose that word over racism because I want us to shift from when people use racism, they they make it the problem of select individuals, as opposed to the foundation upon which our society has been built. And so, This question of what is the value of light skin that you'd be willing to die for is not to put it on you as an individual, like how could you want to die for it? It's to say, of course you want to die for it. Here's the institution and the ideology and the history that made it so.
0: Is there in history a moment that we can pinpoint where this almost all started? I always think about that. Do we know when this all started? Do we know when someone out there chose a specific race to be better than all and then build a system on it?
1: My historical mind is drawing a blank, but there's so many uh, Black historians that can speak to this. And it's less about a date than it would be about a a, a time period, perhaps. Um, But I'm drawing a blank um, in this moment. I I mean, I I think about white supremacy as the ultimate Jedi mind trick that we the people who come from cold and scarce environments are going to convince the people who come from literal abundance that they are inferior to us just so that we can take over everything that they have, just so we can force them to build nations for us. It's an ultimate Jedi mind trick. That's why it's so important for me to call white supremacy out by name because I need Black people, dare I say people, quote unquote, of color, to understand that there are more of us than there are of them. They oppress us for a reason. Look at their origins. Look at their history. It is the ultimate Jedi mind trick.
0: I don't know why while you were saying that in my head, I saw almost like an elementary school type animation showing the beginning of all of this and showing how simple and silly it was to start because the reality of it is it literally doesn't make sense. I remember my now 14 year old sister when she was eight years old, she came home and she had just learned about Harriet Tubman and she had learned that Harriet Tubman was punished for taking an apple off of the tree in where she was living and working. And she came into my room and she started crying and said, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why was it? Why did she get in trouble for, for taking an apple? And when you have a child, I remember she literally, I just turned on my, my laptop camera and I had her record a whole she was preaching and she was just trying to understand as a child, like, it doesn't make sense. Our young minds, the purest form of our minds before they become tainted, cannot understand why inequality in this way and violence in this way would be something that people would think is a good idea or something that, and it and it comes from scarcity mindset. It comes from... Thinking, I mean, Heather McGee talks about it as the zero-sum theory in white supremacy that if you're doing okay, then I must not be doing okay and we can't all do this together.
1: Yeah, no, only binaries. Only binaries. It's so much more complex than that. I also don't want to paint a picture that gives white people more credit than they should have historically, right? Because I think sometimes when we talk about it, it almost positions white people as they were like brilliantly strategic, Right. I don't want to give them that much credit either. What it is to say when I think of, you know, Africa, I think of of African communities and they are um, interaction, original interactions with white people. I mean, I think the thing, A, we have to understand is that people of African descent have been moving across, traversing the world pre-white people, like white people didn't start that, right? So there have been interactions, but when we think about people's lived everyday experiences, right? We have become African as an identity. Mm-hmm. We have become black as an identity. But in its origins, people identify with what they call quote unquote their tribe, right? I don't I don't like the language, but we're here. They're tribal groups, they're ethnic groups, right? They're smaller communities. When you're when you're living in, in Ghana, where my matriline line is from. You may not know anything about a Nigeria, let alone a South Africa, let alone an Alaska. You feel me? You're there in your space. That's where you're centered, right? And so when, and I'm being very simplistic in this explanation, but imagine white folks coming in. We're talking about, you know, original communities that may have already had conflict with neighboring communities for whatever mm-hmm. reason. We have now become African. At that point in time, it was that group versus that group. We're not, there's no community in that, right? We're different people, done. So enter a white person who might want one set of resources from one group versus another set of resources from another group and you insert yourself and insert tension and you have these folks fighting, right? Or let's even take white people out. Maybe these folks were fighting already and here come white people wanting something. I'll trade you human beings for the thing that you're giving me. You don't give a shit about those human beings, they're not your people. When we talk about the history of enslavement, people were like, well, Africans sold each other. We need more context than that. Because again, you're painting a picture as if we're savages, right? That don't care about our own people. We didn't see ourselves as our own, we didn't have to in that moment because our identities weren't framed in that way, right? And so, to sell another human being into whatever destiny that's not someone that you're connected to in any way. What, how's that different than than selling, you know, a goat? (laughs) And I'm just saying that again, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm being very simplistic, but I'm trying to, my point is understanding that oftentimes we talk about racism versus white supremacy. We talk about individuals versus institutions, like we need so much context to understand how things came to be, right? So yes, Europeans is not like, cause again, when we paint pictures, this is why, you know, as parents. Please pay attention to how your children are being taught history, because I've heard narratives from children that make it seem like big, strong Europeans entered Africa and snatched all the Africans who couldn't defend themselves and threw them on boats because it paints a picture of Europeans as particularly powerful in a way that they were not. Most Europeans didn't even go inland. They didn't leave those ports. They couldn't have survived literally. Literally, they couldn't have survived in those environments, right? So we have to be careful about how we even spin the narrative, how we tell the narrative. And that's why I say, I don't want to give white people more credit than they they deserve. But, but it's the same way we talk about, quote, unquote, cowboys and quote, unquote, Indians. We talk about the pilgrims and the quote, unquote, Indians. Our histories are strategic. Mm -hmm. They are not fact. You teach children in a particular way and they will continue to repeat that narrative for the rest of their lives and continue to think of you in a particular way. You are no hero.
0: Yeah, I mean, my husband and I often have conversations about how young people are taught history, how we were taught history, how the textbooks that my younger siblings are using are the same textbooks that I used. And I, and, yeah. and just reading the things out of them and knowing that, you know, these books were written by very specific people. I'm relearning history now. I, mm-hmm. my, one of my really good friends, Zarin Burnett III, he has a podcast called Black Cowboys. It is mm-hmm. almost a cinematic experience. There's the sound, the scoring, and the sound effects, and just the storytelling. Never heard of any of these stories before in my entire life. But, wow, did the Wild West at it for a period of time have an experience that we never even no. knew about.
1: And why would you, why would you?
0: It's it's the most interesting thing about our history, I think. It's the most interesting thing about American history is that period of time, the relationship between indigenous people and black people and how cowboys were coming about and the lawlessness, but like also the unsaid laws, it's just, I think that you would really enjoy it. It's so fun.
1: I will absolutely check it out. But that's my point. Yeah. History is strategic. There's no way you could learn history in K through 12. There's not enough time to teach you all that. But should-
0: even the amount of time that we do get, we're not learning history the right way. But mm-hmm. it's, it's a hard thing to say because technically with history... No one knows 100% of the truth. That's just how it is because we weren't there.
1: No, but also understand that history is an agent of national identity. The history that you are going to learn in America is not the history that I would learn in Ghana. I need to teach you a particular history to make a citizen and a patriot out of
0: you. A Columbia University professor taught me that America's number one export is its story and its story of a dream. And I've never forgot about that because, you know, even just thinking about my cousins in Libya and the conversations that we would have when we would go in the summertime and America was the place that everybody wanted to be. I remember even my dad, when he immigrated here, he got rejected from coming to America. He was So he was trying to go to Australia instead. He, all he wanted his whole life was to leave Libya because we were under a dictatorship. And he happened to bump into someone who was running at the time in in London, who worked for the embassy. And that's how he came to America. And he built, I mean, he built this life for us. And there was, I, I don't know if it was this period of time, but there was so much struggle, you know? I was born in West Virginia. My dad was at Marshall University during his residency. And I recently watched a home video of my baby shower, like when my, that they were having in the hospital. And there were my dad's friends, quote unquote, or colleagues. And I just, there was this one man, this white man who said to him, yeah, now when you go back to Libya, Gaddafi's just going to go kill you or something like, oh, you're like, you're going to get killed. But like in a joking way. And my dad jokingly like laughed, like hesitantly. And I know, and I knew that like, he didn't register that as what was actually happening. I have the tools and the language to understand. I mean, my dad had, you know, hadn't been in America for that long at the time and didn't really understand you know, there's still like cultural differences, sarcasm, jokes, the things that go over your head. But I, I started crying. I watched him, I watched him be told, something derogatory. And it just put a pit in my stomach because it's, it makes me wonder how many more times does that happen? How many times has that happened? I, and I mean, I know that now there was a, a moment, um, was it in 2011 during the Arab spring or maybe at the beginning of Trump's presidency, I don't remember, but at the hospital that my dad's worked at for decades, uh, someone was walking in front of him and then said, I don't wanna walk with a Libyan behind me. So he like stopped and did something. And it's interesting to see that when your parents don't, like I get more offended by that. Of course. Why is it that the children of immigrants get more offended and more hurt by the harassment that their parents endure firsthand?
1: You know, I'm just going to keep coming back to the Jedi mind trick, right? Like, and you started <laughs> it, you started this by talking about your professor who, who taught you that America's, what was it? The biggest export? The biggest
0: export is America's story.
1: I think about this often, right? I'm going to give you another 90 Day Fiance reference for
0: Yes, we love this. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to watch it tonight for the first time and it's all going to yes. be because of you.
1: You have to go all the way back. There's so many seasons, but one of the more popular couples, Michael and Angela. Michael is in Lagos, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Angela somewhere in Georgia, right? Now, Angela is like whatever you think of white Southern Georgian outside of Atlanta, she's it. Okay. She's in her 50s, maybe. Um, country. Michael is young, probably half her age, maybe, or maybe he's 30s, and they meet online. And immediately, you know, he loves her. Now, again, excuse me, I don't want to question their love, Mm -hmm. but as a a, a daughter of immigrants and who's familiar with many stories, we know that there are many people who get married just so they, they can get a quote unquote green card, card. right? (laughs) He seems to be interested in getting this green card. Anyway, him and Angela up and down, back and forth, like they have a wild relationship, quite entertaining. Then comes the time, and Angela has the power now, A, because she's white, B, because she's American, or maybe those things are together, right? She proposes to him. She goes to visit in Nigeria, and there's a moment they had been talking about it, and it's like almost like something she'd been dangling in front of him, and if he doesn't act right, it's not going to happen. It's always this, this power push, right, because she, she holds the power for this. K9 is a K9 K9 visa. When she proposes to Michael, Michael literally jumps up and dances. Like you can see the joy in his face. And she gifted him with a pair of American flag boxer shorts and an, like an American flag that he could hold. And so they cut. And Michael's like, I'm coming to America. I'm coming to America. Donald Trump, I'm coming to meet you. Oh right i use that example because i often wonder my parents immigrated in the late 60s i often wonder what what like what the hell did america represent for you to leave everything right like what is it that america represented that you would leave everything and start anew in a country you know nothing about. I think about it very selfishly. When I go to Ghana and I see my cousins and how they were raised and the community and the family that is there, there's a, there's a visible and visceral distance. I love my family. They love me, but I wasn't raised with them. There's a part of me that resents not having that. And everybody says it's for better opportunities. It's for a better life. This wasn't a better life for me if I think about it in that way. If I privilege family and culture, this wasn't a better life for me, but I'm speaking selfishly. America represented something so great to y'all that you left everything to start anew in a country where you didn't have family, where you didn't have a support system. You were willing to do it that way because
0: and they didn't have the technology to communicate with their families the same way we do today no no facetime no skype
1: nothing literal pickup phone dial operator to get you connected maybe to if you could afford it A phone because my grandmother absolutely didn't have a phone in her compound so that means she had to go somewhere else to get the call you see and so what is it that America is, is is communicating in this world? Because even now, 90 Day Fiance is a current, you know, phenomenon. But that that desire to come to America is still there. And what they constantly say is better opportunities for my family, I want to be able to take care of my family. Everybody talks about going to America, making enough money so they can send back to the family. So then you have the families who are in support. Right of these makeshift relationships because they believe that they're going to get something out of it when in reality hello reality is if and when you get accepted and you come here you can't work for the first six months you cannot work you are completely reliant upon your sponsor completely right So you have to get married within 90 days, which is why they call it 90 Day Fiance. But for the first six months of being in this country, you cannot work. You are completely reliant upon your sponsor, right? After the six months, unless you are highly trained and skilled, what job are you going to get that's going to take care of you and give you all the money that your family is actively dreaming about? Because again, America, I don't know if they think the streets are paved with gold. I don't know if they think money is coming out the skies, but they literally think we are all rich. And maybe comparatively, right? Maybe comparatively, we have much more privilege, much more access, of course, I acknowledge that. But it's like, you know, I don't know. It makes me think of Eddie Murphy's coming to America. Like, like, what are the images that are swimming in your mind? But also, they didn't make it up. So what images are being projected about America for folks to want to be here? How did we get to a place where everyone has come to believe the biggest lie there? Like America is the snake oil salesman. Like America is not the greatest country in the world. Is it media? Absolutely, it's media.
0: And media representation of America? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely and let me come back to the statement about america not being the greatest country in the world let me take that back i'm going to just i'm I'm going to pose it as a question instead of a statement is america the greatest country in the world and if your answer is yes give me the characteristics of greatest
0: based upon what what are your characteristics of greatness
1: i don't know i don't i i wasn't actively thinking of them but it's just it's more of a question right i'm just wondering because again it's the question of what is it that y'all see in america that would make you leave everything behind to get access to it think about if i go on delta right now a plane ticket to ghana is probably going to cost me upwards of 1500 to 2000 dollars, just economy okay I don't know what it cost in my parents' day and time, but I gave you the parameters. You come for 90 days, you must get married. First six months, you cannot work. How long is it gonna take for you to save that money to be able to go back home and visit and also be carrying with you all the things that your family expects? I remember very clearly.
0: Oh, how many suitcases did you do? How take? many suitcases? How Filled many suitcases? with everything here. That's not to mention,
1: not <laughs> to mention the barrels that were probably already sent. Oh, my Just God. Or they had like the kind of uh, baggage restrictions we have now and, and the weight restriction. I remember when you could take 80-pound suitcases. I remember when my suitcases would have probably a quarter of my things and my mom <laughs> would be like, we're using the rest for everybody else's stuff. And then she would literally have clothes made for me when we got to Ghana. I remember this.
0: She would have clothes made for you in Ghana because then, you couldn't bring your... I
1: wasn't anything. She wanted me to bring them all back anyway. That's so, so she good. wanted to my panties and stuff like that and shoes. But no, we're, we have – and it's not even that I they want They still to.
0: do that. My of family course. still does
1: this. Of course. They're still looking for me at the airport. Of course. <laughs> of course. And I'm not going to say they didn't want to. But trust me, they were
0: expected to. Oh, 100%. Ex-
1: I'm talking about lists I've had of
0: family rifts in my <laughs> in my family because of bringing things over and who's going to Libya, who's going to America, who's bringing this stuff. Of course, or or
1: every morning, because everybody gets up with the roosters, someone knocking at the door with pleading their case about why they need some money. Auntie, I need, Auntie, can I have? Because Auntie has clearly got suitcases of, of you're cash. So,
0: you're a billionaire.
1: you have to be right
0: and and we can laugh
1: about it right and again it is not to cast any shame or fault on my family or our families or anyone back home but it is to say i'm coming back to this point this jedi mind trick to whatever people think america is these aren't isolated incidents this is what i'm saying about white supremacy why it's so crucial to me that we unpack white supremacy, because these are all like cogs in the wheel. They're all cogs in the wheel. You got to tell history in a particular way. You got to project media in a particular way.
0: It's also why other countries invest so much money in Hollywood. Oh, wow. The stories that come out of this country are the stories that people believe. And unfortunately, for many of us, that has been fatal to our communities. Those stories have gotten people in our communities killed. And it's It's why I care so much about being in this space. I'm sure it's why you care so much about being in academia as well. Because we have to change the story.
1: And and what I was going to say is, I'm sure for you and I, it feels like what we have to do because it's the truth, right? Understand how brave we are, though. You know how many of our people won't do it because of the... I tell people all the time, loving us costs. It costs me. Those are risks that I'm willing to take, risks that I feel like I have no choice but to take. If not me, then who? There's so many of our people who also understand the insidious nature of white supremacy, and they're thinking about so many other things. And so again, it's a, for me, the work is not judging them, not casting shame on them, because of course you feel that way yeah. if I understand white supremacy. Even in, in the United States, even in the context of academia, you know, how many black scholars are only going to tell particular truths so that they can get tenure, so that they can get promotion, so that they can be the, the talking head that's called to be on CNN, MSNBC and all the other spots. Right, I know I'm very clear, I'm, I'm thankful. <laughs> of the, the ways in which my, my life and blessings are manifesting in this moment. But I also have never expected or depended upon it because I know who I am and I know how I talk. And I know that that's not what people wanna hear. Trust you know me, I, 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 I'm not the diversity person you wanna come to your company to speak. <laughs> you it, it works now, again, I'm thankful, please book me. It works now, but I'm also very clear that like I'm not coming to your I'm not coming into your space and making you feel comfortable with a reality, with a history, with an ideology that should not make you feel comfortable. You are not my audience. So if you want to know what I think, I'm going to tell you. And it's not, it's not.
0: You can do that, though, because you know who your audience is, because you know who you're serving. When people try to serve everyone and they try to be as broad as they can, they end up serving like watered down versions of for some people. And it's also part of the the internal conflict. But the amazing thing is.
1: I also wanted to just throw in there. Let me also be clear. I'm not only talking about white people. There are lots of black people who don't want to hear what I have to say either. Because I put them at risk. They have to distance themselves from me. I'm not that kind of black. That black makes you uncomfortable. That black is a problem. Look at me, I'm a better black.
0: What is what is being better in that regard mean?
1: Being a white supremacist. Also believing the things that white supremacy projects about black people. Also believing that you have to work twice as hard, twice as long, right? also believing that you have to, I mean, even when we just talk about simple body politics, your hair has to look a particular way, your skin color should be a particular hue, your body type maybe, the names that you uh, name your children, how you speak, the food you eat, where you vacation, who you vacation with, who your friend circles are, what you do, what type of music you listen to, what type of car you drive, which cul-de-sac you live in, which city you live, on and on and on and on. How do I perform? And the thing about it is, in fairness, most people don't even recognize their own performance. That's the insidious nature of white supremacy.
0: I do think too that for a lot of us, when you have the language, when you learn what you just taught, it's almost like a light bulb just went on. And takes see. a lot of therapy <laughs> and and work on your insides. <laughs> And it's a forever journey, but you are a leading example. You haven't compromised on your identity or your beliefs and look at how successful you've been and look at how successful you feel in your heart and you know yourself because you can have no money in the bank. You can be dealing with health issues, whatever it is. You can have all of those things, those life things that make us all human that we all go through at some point in our lives. But if you know who you are, and you haven't wavered on that, your spirit can feel at peace because everything else is temporary.
1: No, I receive that and I, and I hope to live that. And I remind myself of that, you know? And quite honestly, there are moments where I, you know, I get pissed, I get annoyed when I sit back and watch the folks who take up certain space, the folks who I know are making ridiculous amounts of money at the expense of our lived realities and truths, it's mm. annoying. It's annoying.
0: Annoying is such a cute word for it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I also am continually reminding myself and my community continues to remind me that I cannot focus on that. Yep. I, I can't focus on it. There's nothing yeah. I can do about it. Let those people be, you know, but I, you know, I feel good about what my name will represent when I'm no longer here.
0: You are so blessed to be able to say that statement. Thank you. And it did not come without turmoil on the inside and the out.
1: Oh, it did <laughs> And it continues.
0: Hi, I hope you're enjoying the storytelling session. I just wanted to share something with you. If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You, and we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY isyfoundation or PayPal to contact at If you or someone you know is in need in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram, isyfoundation, or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me, for being so open, for crying with me and letting me cry. I, just hearing no. you say that, I didn't know that I needed it. It felt like medicine. Thank you for that.
1: You're welcome.
0: I have some not-so-rapid, rapid-fire questions that I'd like to ask you. Okay. First one is, what song do you listen to for joy
1: that changes so regularly um here lately uh it was luther vandross's 70th birthday a few days ago i have been listening to luther vandross on repeat but my favorite luther song is never too much it makes me so happy
0: I love that. I'm making a playlist of all of the songs that our storytellers have shared with us. And the question is always for joy. So it's just like an all joy storytelling playlist. So thank you for sharing your contribution. You're welcome. What book did you read during quarantine that changed how you feel about something?
1: I wish I had time to read, um, but I did reread for the gazillionth time, my favorite book, which is The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And every time I read it, I see something else.
0: Mm. Well, one of our storytellers on this season is actually her daughter, Rebecca Walker. Oh, yay. And I just did her Art of the Memoir course a couple of weeks ago. and It was really amazing. It was such a special, special experience.
1: Nice. I need to get into that myself.
0: Oh, you should totally do it. You would love it. If... If I were to visit New Orleans, what is the perfect day trip there?
1: What do you mean by day trip?
0: <laughs> <laughs> if I had one day to hang out with you in New Orleans, mm-hmm. what would we do to have the perfect day? Oh, we would eat and drink. That's
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> we, would be, we would, you would have to really, you'd have to train now. We'd be drinking all day. We're going to start with that. We're going to start with mimosas. We're going to have brunch um somewhere maybe we'll go to cafe du monde and have beignets oh i
0: love their beignets i actually don't drink alcohol which might be better for me because then i can just have so many virgin mimosas and mocktails and just hang out with you enjoying every minute
1: can we just make an excuse for one (laughs) (laughs) gotta gotta have daiquiris no um no we would eat i've been considering taking a quick trip to new orleans just to eat. I'm like gumbo and crawfish and jambalaya. Oh
0: my goodness. Well, I'm fully vaccinated. So if you did want to go with someone, I'm so happy to attend and eat every single thing. And this is not a joke. I completely 100% mean that.
1: Do you like spicy food?
0: Yes, of course. You know, I have to ask. I'm still North African. Like, it's still there. (laughs) Okay, Okay, but then we're good. I'm so excited for this. (laughs) If when I go to Ghana, one of my best friends is Ghanaian. Nice. What do I have to eat there and where do I have to visit?
1: Oof, what do you have to eat? I'm so greedy. It has to be only one thing or no?
0: No, no, no. I want so much. I'm fasting right now. It's Ramadan. I'm fasting and I need to hear about food because it makes me so happy.
1: Okay. So for breakfast you're gonna have plantain and spinach maybe some boiled yam and boiled egg right and then maybe mm, snack time you might have some uh gary Foto, which is gary which is a grain but it's made with like a tomato sauce and palm oil situation snacky food You might have some kebab from the roadside we might get you some oh you gotta have fufu you have to have fufu fufu is a pounded yam um and it they make it into like a softball and you eat you know one thing that one of my favorite uh professors who's ethiopian taught me um not that he taught me but he said it one day um I love eating with my hands and you know of course people who are not from cultures where we eat from our hands they look at us like what's wrong with you <laughs> like you know holding up his four fingers he's like this is the cleanest fork you'll ever have right which made me feel so proud like that's right this is that's, my fork yeah. right but you know food, we eat most of our food with our hands and so fufu is something it, it's a pounded yam you eat with soup Um, and eat in a lot of places in, in, in West Africa. Of course you have to have jollof rice, you know, people try to tell you that Nigerian jollof is better than (laughs) Uh, lye.
0: I knew you were going to say that. I knew it.
1: Okay. Just trust me. (laughs) Um, my favorite Ghanaian dish is I love okra. Most people don't like okra. I I love love
0: it. We call it bamya.
1: The slimier, the better. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we make an okra stew or soup, they call it. I call it a stew. But, you know, okra and crab and shrimp and meat. Whatever you want is in the... It's, it's, you know what? When we speak about cultural ties, okra and gumbo are cousins. Because the best gumbo has okra in it. Okra and gumbo are cousins. It is the same thing, except ours might have more of a texture because you eat it with your fingers. So that's why the slime is there, you know, to pull it. Whereas gumbo is more of a soup.
0: Wow. Fun fact.
1: Yes. And so okra is a favorite. There's also I know we're not supposed to eat tilapia. Fine. Grilled tilapia.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, even in Ghana, though, like in Ghana, we still can't have tilapia.
1: I don't know i mean we're gonna have tilapia yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah. okay cool 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 cool.
1: for the health conscious people you know turn their nose up at tilapia but tilapia uh grilled tilapia um ooh, now i'm hungry um See? I think so I think good those are my favorite. but you know what also i love that i don't get here of course plantain um which we eat all over the diaspora yeah. whether it's fried or grilled or what have you but there's also fried yam which in some places, you know, they cut them almost like big French fries. Just amazing. And you eat it with hot pepper. Oh, yeah, I've had that. Our pepper is called shita.
0: Amazing.
1: Yeah. Do you make
0: Ghanaian food?
1: No, don't do that to me publicly.
0: Okay, sorry. (laughs) 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 It's okay. If you ask me the same question, I would literally respond with just blushing my cheeks. I would never tell you not to say something, though. I would just be like,
1: ah. exactly. no, my No, much to my mother's chagrin, I do not. Uh, I can fry plantains.
0: I uh, want your fried plantains, and that's it. <laughs> I, that's all I want, just that. And where should we go?
1: You know, Ghana is a magical place. Unfortunately, I haven't been any more north than... Um, Kumasi, which is the capital. I really want to go to Northern Ghana. I think we might enjoy that together primarily because culturally it's more, um, I don't even know the word I want to use. It's so ancient from what I've seen and a very big uh, Islamic culture there it mm. was so interesting when you look at that area there's like a circle you can draw and it's mostly hausa people and hausa are you know west african uh muslims um i've always wanted to see northern ghana but if we go where i know then you know we could go to kamasi to do the kind of tourist things for you to see the palace and the golden stool and such but i would want to take you to to, to drive the coast from Accra to Cape Coast so that you can, A, when we get to Cape Coast and Elmina, we'll go to the dungeons. They call them castles. They are not castles. They are the dungeons where enslaved Africans were transported. We'll take you there so you can see for yourself. It's very haunting. But why I love that drive is that Cape Coast, Quote unquote castle and Elmina, quote unquote castle, are the two that were restored and the two that you can go to for tourism. But when you drive and you look, you can see the ones that have been abandoned. They're so. Whoa.
0: Wow. Ooh, that's like a haunted, that's like yeah. where you go and write a horror book. It's like a historical yeah. fiction, Yeah, you know, time travel. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great. So I can't wait.
1: You just have to see it for yourself.
0: Hmm. Who is your favorite scholar who you enjoy learning from? Hmm, Besides there's
1: yourself. So there's so many. Don't make me do that.
0: You can you can name a few. It's okay. Um, I really enjoy
1: Hmm,
0: hmm,
1: hmm, 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 hmm. Now I'm drawing a blank. I feel like I have to name all my friends because they're also brilliant.
0: Okay, name your friends. Um, I would love that.
1: You know, I claim a feminist identity because of one of my best friends who I went to grad school with. Her name is Dr. Kyla Story. Kyla is one of those people who I wish was getting her flowers. Um, She is absolutely the reason why I claim a feminist identity. She is the person who showed me that I was already feminist and just afraid of the language. Mm. Um, but she's beautifully brilliant, and she teaches in such a simple way, yet so powerful, so absolutely absolutely Kyla i'm gonna leave i'm gonna give that to Kyla. Kyla's my favorite scholar.
0: I love that tribute, and finally, mm. what do you know for sure?
1: What do I know for sure? I know that black is beautiful. Black is resilient, and that joy is my birthright.
0: This is me the whole time in our interview, on my insides, just dancing, (laughs) shaking on the inside. (laughs) Dr. Yabublay, how can we all support you and your work?
1: You can buy my book. Um, My book, One Drop Shifting the Lens on Race, finally back in stock. Um, What's your favorite bookstore
0: we could buy it from?
1: Well, you know, I would just love if you would support your local independent Black-owned bookstore. You can locate one if you're not familiar, going through bookshop.org. There are two here in Philadelphia that I would love if you could support. If you can't, pick one. It's Uncle Bobby's um, and Harriet's Bookstore, both in Philadelphia. Um, And you can find me online, yabablay.com. And I'm also on social at yabablay.
0: Oh, and why do you lowercase the D in Doctor Yaba Blay? <laughs> I you like know, didn't even look, get to look at my questions really because we were just in this like little heart moment, and that was the thing I was the most curious about.
1: You know, I like playing with words, and I like playing with the language. I've always respected bell hooks, for example, who chose to write her name in lowercase letters as a mm-hmm. as a way a nod to anti capitalism, and so many people I respect do the same. Dream Hampton. Adrienne Marie Brown. Um, I wasn't at the place where I was ready to to write my entire name in lowercase letters. But in in writing the doctor in lowercase for me, it's less about being anti capitalist as it is about somehow trying to knock the title down a peg. And 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 it, it it's there. So yes, you can respect the fact that I have earned a Ph.D. and therefore earned the title of doctor but it is not my, the entirety of my identity. If I didn't have to lead with it, I wouldn't. But since I should, I'm lower. I'm just, it's there, but don't give it too much power.
0: (laughs) I feel like you just saying that is more power than actually giving it power. (laughs) I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. What an honor it is to learn from you and hear from you and just be guided by your stories. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this guided storytelling with Dr. Yaba Blay. For more Dr. Blay, you can follow her on Instagram at Yaba Blay. And you can check out her website, yabablay.com. You can also buy her book, One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race, anywhere you get your books. And I mean, it's a gorgeous coffee table book with beautiful, glossy photographs. I know you'll enjoy it. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, it is up on YouTube or Facebook, both slash Nor. And to you, our listener, I want to thank you for your listen and support. I'd love to stay connected. Here are some ways I'm telling stories these days. You can text me if you are in the US or Canada. Yes, it is me, not a bot. I also text you intentional daily questions of the day. My number is 301 246-8894. 246 You can follow us on social, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube at Noor, and on Instagram at AYS. My Twitter, Snapchat, and Clubhouse is ntagori.